Hello YouTube. I just learned what guys here learned from uh, Monish Fabry and uh, Charlie Munger. So you can learn it too. And if you like it, subscribe. Thank you. Hi, nice to meet you in Zurich. Thank you for inviting us to your library. Tillman, it's a pleasure. And uh, it's also a pleasure to see um, German quality and precision being used. <laughs> I should have expected it, but uh, I was still mildly surprised. I try my best. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing very well. Thank you. Um, I wanted, I named the topic of our first part of our interview, um, Becoming Guy's Beer. Yeah. And uh, I want to ask some questions that are more broadly. Yeah. And let's just start with it. Uh, what mistakes made you the investor you are today? <laughs> Uh, how much time do you have um, for Our, me to talk about it? hours and hours and hours? Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, so, and by the way, for the listener, they should know that I didn't know what these questions were beforehand. Um, actually, it's, it's a key approach to life is to take your mistakes and learn as much as you possibly can from them. And it's actually only through our mistakes that we've become who we are. I, I would say that um, I wrote about it in my book, the mistake that I made to go and work for somebody that I did not respect and admire. Not only did I not respect and admire him, I think that some of his behaviors exhibited the worst of what the uh, financial markets are. Um, that 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 taught me an awful lot but it only taught me an awful lot because i i was able to find a way to get into a state of mind where i was willing to learn from that and um i think that the worst thing that i see from time to time in people is that they feel like when they've made a mistake that's it and mistakes are the most beautiful blessings or if you see mistakes as the most beautiful blessings then you will get the opportunity to improve and learn. So that was certainly, I don't think I would have discovered Warren Buffett. I don't think I would have become an investor. I think I may have done many other things, but it was the fact that I was sitting in that office in Wall Street in downtown Manhattan uh, and was just thrown back on myself uh, that gave me the space to start exploring other things. So that certainly was the biggest mistake. But... Uh, I think that the mistake that most recently, so we go from one of the first mistakes that I made to the most recent mistake. Uh, I've talked many times about investing in horsehead holding. And um, I think I got some new insight into that recently, which is actually really important. So I've had a couple of investments in my portfolio that have performed horribly over the last year or two but it doesn't bother me in the slightest because I sized them right. Uh, and um, the, I could not have foreseen many of the things that happened at Horsehead Holdings, uh, but I could have sized the investment right. And the investment was clearly wrongly sized. And I think I've become much more aware of how important it is to size your investments uh, to the right degree. And we all know the Kelly formula, but... Uh, um, so we kind of know it in theory, but to put it into practice is an art that I'm learning more about. How long did it take for you to find this blessing or this 
this dealing with mistakes as a blessing? Uh, so I think that where it started for me, and it's why I kind of, when I meet people who haven't lived in the United States, I kind of want to encourage them to go live in the US because I think that the US, it's sort of in the air, this idea of um, succeeding against the odds and using failure to succeed. And at the time that I was at DH Blair, I'd been living in the US two or three years. So I was starting to really absorb that um, what sort of exists, zeitgeist, what just exists in the atmosphere. But then uh, I discovered Anthony Robbins. And Anthony Robbins has been uh, a controversial figure. Many people don't enjoy either his seminars or other things about him. But I found that he gave me just what I needed, which was the ability to reorient my brain to see failure and to see mistakes and to see setbacks in a different light. And in a certain way, so many times when something bad happens, we have this natural and very fast reaction in our body to start feeling bad about ourselves. And it's almost a timing issue that we have to get there before that sets in and stop it. And I actually, just to give an example, not to do with investing, uh, you go out running. Now, today I went running this morning before I saw you, but it's a beautiful day. Uh, but what if you go out running and it starts raining? There's a body reaction that says, oh, it's raining, I shouldn't go running, let's go home. You need to step in before at that and say, yes, rain. Get, get a different reaction going in your body, and if you can start that. So I think I started learning that from Tony Robbins um, now, 20 years ago. And there are all sorts of places to learn it. I mean. Um, Neurolinguistic programming, I think, is really, really powerful, just studying the use of words. It's the people you get around. Uh, I, get, I got very angry at somebody uh, a couple of days ago who um, started feeling sorry for me because my children are no longer in my home, they're in boarding school. And I got angry at her for even starting to start feel, feeling sorry for me or to encourage those feelings inside me. Because, not because I wanted to be angry with her, but because I want to get myself as far away from those kinds of influences. I don't know if that's helpful. That's very helpful. <laughs> you mentioned like, that you copied some concepts for your work and your thinking. What other concepts and people did you copy? I mean, um, so... Uh, I think that uh, the, so uh, I think we have to copy everyone, all success that we see all the time. And I think that the biggest thing for me is not so much who, but getting to the idea that we should copy. So there's this idea that we get at universities and at schools that your work has to be original. And in an academic setting, that's absolutely true that we should not um, plagiarize other people's work. But the minute you get into the world of business, actually um, copying, or as Monish Pabrai says, cloning, is the ultimate thing to do. It's the thing that we don't do enough of. And one of the many things that I didn't understand is that there's a strange thing that happens is that when you copy other people, when you copy success, you actually make it your own. Uh, so it's actually in a certain way not copying, it's learning from other people. Um, but if I just stop and think, I mean, most recently for me, uh, something that I think that, I don't know if I've been focused on it, but um, 
I think that there's a calm, I've been, so in my book, I wrote about how I wasn't into meditation and it wasn't really something for me. And then people wrote, I apologize. <laughs> and then, so in my book, you'll have to cut it. In my book, I wrote about how meditation wasn't really something for me. Uh, and, um, uh, and then a lot of people wrote to me and said, Guy, you've got that completely wrong. Uh, meditation is certainly something for you. And this is like, now the book's five years old. So this slowly, this thought slowly percolated down on me. And I started trying, I, not consciously, but I started thinking more about some of the more thoughtful, quote, meditative investors that I know. And so um, I reached out and spent some time with a guy called Josh Tarasoff recently. Josh is a very thoughtful guy and um, is meditative in a certain way, spends far more time, I think, thinking than I do. Another guy that I reached out to is um, uh, somebody who's no longer a professional investor. His name is Nick Sleep. And I just recently had lunch with him in London. I really enjoyed seeing how he creates a quiet environment around him. And, uh, and then there's somebody else that you have to go interview if he'll give you an interview, this Sarab Madan, who finally, he's gone to work at Markel Insurance. He works closely with Tom Gaynor now. He finally connected me up with um, some people uh, who are gonna teach me Vipassana meditation. So I'm gonna be Tillman at the beginning of November. I'm gonna be spending 10 days uh, with zero contact with anything other than my own mind. And um, so uh, I, I think that just spending time, well, if you admire somebody, you want to be like them. And if I try and pull people, all of those three people I admire for all sorts of reasons. And if you pull them into your life, then you start the ideas that will enable you to copy them pop up naturally. And I know that in the case of Sarab Madan, for example, he'll be one of the first people that I get in touch with after my 10 days of Vipassana meditation because um, uh, he'll be curious to find out and I would have become a little bit more like him in that regard. Actually, funnily enough, the first guy who got me going on that is a, uh, is a German guy, Reimar Schultz. He told me, and it's funny, he sort of, at my ValueX conference, he sat down with me and he said, Guy, I know you don't think it, but you should go and do some Vipassana meditation. And now, he just said that about four or five years ago, maybe three years ago, four years ago. So now finally I'm going, I'm quite excited as you can see. So um, cloning or copying people happens just from being around them and finding ways to be around them. Um, yeah. Sorry, these are long and uh, meandering questions. It's, it's great. It's very interesting. Yeah. I try a language switch. Wie Deutsch oder Schweizerisch bist du denn mittlerweile? Wie rede ich? Nee, wie du wie Deutsch? Was ist der deutsche Anteil und der Schweizer ah, Anteil? Bei mir. Also, also ich muss sagen, dass, dass bei mir ich rede immer weniger Deutsch. Umso mehr, dass ich in der Schweiz wohne und ich wohne hier seit zehn Jahren. Und was passiert bei mir? Überall herum, es gibt Leute, die entweder unsere Arbeitsumgebung ist Englisch und dann die Leute, die, mit denen ich arbeite, 
auch wenn die gut Englisch, wenn ich gut Deutsch reden kann, Arbeitssprache ist Englisch. Und dann zu Hause, ich rede mit meiner Frau Englisch und dann, wann rede ich Deutsch? Das geht immer weniger. Leider, weil Deutsch gefällt mir sehr, aber ähm, ich habe kein Deutsch zu Hause. Meine Kinder wollen mit mir kein Deutsch reden, auch, auch wenn die Deutsch können. Und also dann zwischen Deutsch und Schweizerdeutsch. Also ich, ich, ich bin berechtigt, Schweizerdeutsch zu reden, weil Deutsch ist nicht meine Muttersprache. Also ich kann es schon, obwohl die Deutschen, die können das nicht, weil das ist deine Muttersprache und du siehst, ich kann das nicht so gut. Aber ich kann schon Kuchenkäschli sagen. Und warum kann ich Kuchenkäschli sagen? Weil ich kann Hebräisch und dann kriegt man den Ch. <lacht> Aber wenn ich Deutsch rede, eigentlich, wir haben ein, also das, die Firma hier, wir haben Begegnungen, die auf Deutsch sind, für regulatorisch, für Finma. Also ich rede ein bisschen Deutsch, aber ich habe die Frage vergessen. Was war die Frage? Was ist dein deutscher oder schweizer Anteil in dir? Ah, in mir. Also ja, ich habe einen deutschen Pass. Ich bin eine, ich, ich, ich bin mit meinem deutschen Pass geboren. Uh, weil ein Elternanteil in mir ist deutsch. Uh, meine Mutter ist auch aus Südafrika. Mein Vater eigentlich ist auch nicht in Deutschland geboren. Der ist in Israel geboren. Seine Eltern waren Deutsche, die aus Deutschland in den 30er Jahren ausgewandert sind. Uh, es gibt große Geschichte da. Ich bin sehr stolz auf meine deutschen Geschichte. Ich bin sehr stolz auf den deutschen Staat heute, was sehr gute Beziehungen an Israel hat und sehr gute Beziehungen auch auf ihre Geschichte hat. Wenn ich in Israel sage, dass ich bin stolzer Deutscher, es gibt ähm, äh, Leute, die ne, das nicht gerne haben, aber ich sage es sowieso, ich bin stolz über wie Deutschland mit seiner äh, Geschichte. Es hat, Deutschland hat eine sehr gute Beziehung an, an die Geschichte, die sie hat. Und, äh, aber für mich Deutsch ist nicht eine Muttersprache. Ich bin in England mehr oder weniger aufgewachsen. Jetzt habe ich große, Pro große Probleme mit dem Brexit. Es könnte wohl kommen, dass obwohl ich habe Familie, viel Familie und Freundschaftskreis in England, ich würde nicht in England mich wenn ich da ähm, wohnen wollte, könnte ich nicht, weil mit deutschen Pass werde ich nicht berechtigt, nach dem Brexit nach England auszuwandern. Aber also das ist mein deutscher Anteil. Ähm, und eigentlich, das hat mich geholfen, äh, in die Schweiz zu zügeln, weil bei den Berkshire Hathaway Meetings, ich habe angefangen, mit den deutschsprachigen in Value Investoren Treff da zu gehen. Und das hat mich eine Beziehung und nach, an die Schweiz und an Deutschland gegeben und die bessere Möglichkeit, mich von New York zu, in die Schweiz zu kommen. Schweizer Anteil, vor zehn Jahren, als ich hierher gekommen bin, habe ich ein paar schweizerdeutsche Lektionen gemacht, ein bisschen besser zu lernen, wie die Leute hier reden. Ich, ich habe das aufgegeben, ich wollte nicht muttersprachig oder so gut wie Schweizerdeutsch reden, das, es, ich brauche es nicht. Aber wenn ich mit den Schweizern Schweizerdeutsch rede oder versuche Schweizerdeutsch zu reden, die sind mit mir froh. Also, also aber, und jetzt sind wir hier zehn Jahre und ähm, wir, wir werden möglicherweise Schweizer ähm, 
Staatsbürgerschaft kriegen, dann wird ein Teil von mir Schweizer sein. Aber letzte, letzte Seite an diesem Antwort ist, dass es gibt Leute, die ich, ich versuche zu, zu erklären, wenn Leute mich fragen, wenn, wenn ich wäre in Brooklyn geboren, in Manhattan aufgewachsen und jetzt habe ich ein, ein Haus mit Kindern in New Jersey und die Leute fragen, aber was bist du? Bist du Brooklyn, Manhattan oder New Jersey? Die Antwort ist alle drei. Und wenn Leute mich fragen, also bist du Deutsche, bist du aus, aus Sudafrika, bist du Engländer? Ich bin alle diese Sachen. Meine Identität, wie viele Leute, Identität von vielen Leuten ist, ist komplex. Which people had the biggest influence on you? Um, yeah, so, uh, um, you know, I've talked about, um, uh, I feel like I want to go, in answering this question, I want to go further than just renaming people who've had an influence me on me that I've talked about. But just to summarize briefly, there's no question that my father's had a huge influence on me, and we can go into why. Um, you know, we all, all of us, who are in this community uh, are enormously grateful to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Uh, and, um, and you know, I, for me, uh, the, um, the learning curve that I went up when I met Warren, um, Monish Pabrai was enormous. In fact, I write in my book, and I would hold on to that today, that in a certain way, I learned more from Monish Pabrai than I learned from Warren Buffett. And the proximity to Monish Pabrai helped me enormously. Um, I would say that even though he, I don't know Charlie Munger and he's not a friend or anything, there are some things in Charlie Munger that I react to, um, I, I hate to say it, slightly negatively. So um, I don't agree with Charlie Munger that it's wrong to read fiction. Funnily enough, I saw Charlie Munger say that. And I specifically decided that even though I had not read a lot of fiction, I would start reading more fiction. And that there was more for me to learn from fiction and that I wouldn't want to die without having read certain books. I would tell you that now I've been married 15 years. Uh, my wife has had an enormous influence on me, just an enormous influence. Um, uh, she has some qualities. Uh, so she, far more than me, for reasons that I'm not ashamed of, but I wish it didn't exist inside me. I am much more aware when I meet people than my wife of who they are, what position they hold, how wealthy they are. Uh, and I, and while I wish it didn't happen, my reaction changes based on that knowledge. My wife is not like that. She treats everybody the same. And I think that over 15 years, I've become much better at that. And um, so my wife has had an enormous influence on me. Um, What did you learn from Monish Pabrai? Can you maybe name three things? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so one is, and not much has been written about this, uh, is there's an art to cloning. So if you copy the wrong things, you're not actually cloning what you should be cloning. So. Um, If I want to copy Warren Buffett, or if I want to become more like Warren Buffett because I want the success that he has in the world, I could choose to wear the same clothes as him, or I could choose to drink Diet Coke. 
but that's not really what makes Warren Buffett Warren Buffett. I mean, it's fun and it's funny to do and there's nothing wrong with it and it's harmless. But um, you want to be a kind of a close student and observe what it is that I admire, in this case, what is it that I admire in Warren Buffett and how can I copy what he does? And drinking Diet Coke might not be the most important thing. So for example, uh, uh, in the case of setting up an investment partnership, one of the things that I failed to clone Warren Buffett in was this zero management fee, naught uh, and 25. And I did not realize, you know, there's no point drinking with Diet Cokes or the Coca-Colas or eating the uh, peanut brittles if you're not going to clone those far, far more important things. So figuring out what to clone in somebody, what is, what is relevant and what is not, I think is one extraordinarily important thing that I learned from, um, from Monish Pabrai. Uh, the second thing that I would uh, go to is, um, it, it's not a, it can, well, did I learn it from Monish Pabrai? Um, the, uh, you sort of, so in order to achieve success, practical success in life, you need to figure out I learned from Monish that I need to figure out what behaviors can I engage in consistently that are going to work over time. But then, so, so the one thing is to learn those behaviors, and then the next thing is to do it consistently over a period of years. And I saw Monish Pabrai doing that in various ways, not just, not just doing certain behaviors consistently, but building an organization that will do it. How do you build an organization that makes the world happy that you exist? You know, a book that influenced me a lot that I, I think that uh, all value investors should read is, is by a guy called Tony Sear called Delivering Happiness. And basically, he built Zappos around the idea that what he wanted to do is, is have a company that, quote, delivers happiness. But unlike uh, many people, he scaled that up. And how did he scale that up? What did he do? He actually had a system in hiring the customer service reps early on that um, uh, if they didn't meet certain criteria that he wanted in the employees, he'd pay them to leave. He'd give them a $2,000 check to walk out the door. Uh, so he had some unusual ways of building an organization that does what most of us think. So I learned in, in a second lesson, I learned from Monish Pabrai in a, how to scale up. So it's not enough to read in a book, this is a good behavior. Uh, writing thank you notes is a good behavior. Sending holiday cards is a good behavior. You need to discipline yourself to do it. And even better, you need to scale up an organization to do it. When I say an organization, that doesn't need to mean hundreds of people could be a small team of four or five people. And if you look at, if I look at the behavior of Debbie Bassanek, um, obviously uh, Warren Buffett selected her, but she helps amplify Warren Buffett. So, you know, she's doing for Warren Buffett what he could not do for himself. And so we all need to find people who can help us to scale up what we want in the world. So that's a second huge lesson that I learned from Monish Pabrai. Um, and uh, uh, I'm sort of like searching around my mind to pick a third lesson, and my mind is blanking, but let's see if I come up 
with then we could two lessons out. Well, no, I, I'll I'll give a third one, and and so I will give you a theory, which I see Monish doing in practice, and I think that we all know the theory, but the lesson of doing it in practice is something that I'm still not very good at, but at least I know what I'm aiming for, and uh, the the theory is this. So a um, a false positive is much more expensive than a false negative. What does that mean? If I hire the wrong person, that's a false positive. It is going to be far more expensive for me than to not hire a great person. So to say no to somebody who actually turns out to be a fantastic person uh, doesn't cost us anything because we said no and they're out of our lives. But to say yes to somebody who turns out to be a negative in our lives is extraordinarily expensive because it just takes time to get rid of them. And sometimes you can't get rid of them for years. So that means that we need to be extraordinarily biased towards saying no. It's okay to say no to something that turns out to be okay. Uh, but it, and I have an element inside me that wants to be fair and wants to be inclusive and wants to bring all sorts of people into my life who end up being false positive. So that's the theory. I think that what I've seen in Monish is that he's very quick, very, very quick to do it. And he doesn't feel any sense of um, uh, sort of, he doesn't feel bad about having done it. And, uh, and I think that I've learned to be better at that. So you, you kind of don't worry about the fact that I have to learn not to worry about whether the person is a good person or not. It's okay to just say the person doesn't meet criteria, my criteria, so, or the, this investor doesn't meet my criteria, or this investment doesn't meet my criteria. Just one other, perhaps even better lesson, Tillman. So here's a lesson that I learned through uh, Monish Pabrai, but also from his observations of Charlie Munger. This is kind of a gem. This might be the best part of this, this conversation. Um, so we all know Adam Grant's idea of being a giver, being a matcher or being a taker. So just very briefly, um, matchers will say, oh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. They match. A taker, when you do something for a taker, they will say, oh, wow, he did this for me. I wonder what else I can get out of him. Uh, a giver is somebody who says, oh, he did this for me. What can I do for him? What can I do for that person? What can I do for that person? The bottom line is that we want to be around givers. So that's, uh, that's Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, very worthwhile book to read. So now Monish gave me an observation of Charlie Munger. So I don't know Charlie Munger well, uh, but Charlie Munger has a very gruff exterior. He is, um, he's not a friendly person to approach. And what Monish Pabrai shared with me is that when you become a friend with him, and Monish Pabrai is a friend with him, that demeanor completely changes. He becomes extraordinarily warm and generous and giving in a way that he's not in the general public. And so here's the insight that is really a profound insight. If you are a giver in life, which Charlie Munger is, you'll have a lot of people coming at you. And so you have to develop often a very uh, gruff exterior in order to keep them away. 
And uh, so many of the world's greatest givers are actually not particularly pleasant on first meeting because they have to keep people away for them, from them. By contrast, uh, takers are often the most extraordinarily friendly, warm, uh, sort of like, they, and they have to do that in order to draw people in. So the world has these kind of strange um, inversions where what you think you're getting is not actually what you're getting. The nicest talking person at the, uh, at the cocktail party may be the least worthwhile friend. And the most worthwhile friend isn't talking to anybody at the cocktail party because he's got so many people coming at him. I think that was a profound lesson. Just because somebody has a gruff exterior, don't assume they're not givers to the people who are close to them. So, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> How does a typical day or week of you look like? Yeah, so um, I will describe, I can describe two things, my ideal day and my typical day. So, uh, and I, the reason why I say that is that I am traveling more than I would prefer. Uh, the reason why I'm traveling is for good reasons. Um, I, uh, my, my children, much as they enjoy being in Switzerland, have decided that they like going to boarding schools in the UK. And so I'm in the UK a lot to visit them and to see them. Uh, and uh, I don't like, well, we're going to figure out I will have a place in the UK, we will have a place in the UK, which will make it better. But my ideal day, I've worked out that if I'm going to do exercise, I'm much happier and more relaxed. And the only real time for me to get the motivation to do exercise in the morning. So I try to start each day with, um, with exercise. Uh, I also, uh, I leave the uh, shutters relatively open and I try to wake with the morning light. So, you know, rarely I wake at 6 or 7 a.m. I might wake at 8 or 9 a.m. I allow the morning light to wake me up and I don't set meetings for the morning. So um, I will not have any meetings before uh, 11 o'clock if I have to have a meeting. I can so, confirm that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no, I, I did actually have a doctor's appointment before I saw you. But, um, uh, but I, so I get up and I do sport. Uh, if I'm doing intermittent fasting, I'll try not to eat before I do sport and eat after I, I've done the sport. Uh, and then I, then I come home after sport, I shower, and um, uh, I really like to read in the morning. So uh, I have various places where I read, and it might either be uh, investment reading or it might just be the book that I'm reading or the books that I'm reading. And I have a couple of places that I do that. But... Um, so depending on the morning, I'll try to get to the office sometime mid-morning, but it may be as late as one or two o'clock if I'm really enjoying the reading and what I have going on um, at home. And then here in the office, I have things usually turn very differently in that I still have uh, at least two key people who work for me in the United States. So there's quite a bit of me that's tuned into the US time zone. So things tend to get busy around 2 p.m. People are waking up on the east coast of the United States, 2, 3 p.m. Uh, there's often conversations and things going on with the United States. And so that's kind of a busy time for me, much as I would like to nap in the afternoon. Uh, and we're here in the library where I spend far too little time. Uh, and that usually lasts till 
six or so, uh, six, seven o'clock, uh, if my children are home or if my wife's at home, I want to get home for dinner with her. And then, you know, after dinner, I will do either work or reading at home. That, that is my ideal day. Um, what disrupts it is travel. But when I'm traveling, I try to keep to the same kind of routine in that it's get up in the morning and do sport, uh, then do reading, and then in the and then after lunch, busy work. I think if I lived on the west coast of the United States and most of the world was getting up before me, I might be able to spend, I might change it around and the morning, an early morning would be sort of busy with type work and then the afternoon would be more reading type work. But, um, but actually ever since high school, I learned that the absorbing new information uh, happens best in the morning, in absorbing new ideas and concepts. So it's good to read in the morning. What are right incentives for you? Which incentives are important in life? Yeah, I mean, um, so something that I see uh, a lot, and it's uh, completely understandable, is that the incentive of many people is to make money, get rich, get richer. And um, why do we want that? We want that for security. We want that for self-actuation and achievement. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think that um, I, I feel, I believe, when I've looked at billionaires, um, the motivation just to make more money when you're already rich seems to me a little bit ridiculous. I mean, imagine saying, um, oh, you know, I, I'm going to pile up oxygen, more oxygen than I could ever breathe in my lifetime. Why? Because oxygen's good. You know, it would be like a little ridiculous, wouldn't it? And um, in a certain way, money is a bit like oxygen. It's fuel that makes things happen in the world. But you can't use more of it than you need. So why would you try and pile up more than you would ever need in your lifetime? And so I've that's something that I've struggled with a little bit over the last few years where I suddenly realized that if you take that oxygen analogy, I have around me more oxygen than I would need in my lifetime. And uh, I think that what, what, and I'm not saying that I'm doing a good job at it, is the, the motivation to make the world a safer place for myself and my children. It's a reason why I like living in Switzerland. It's a place that uh, so much of my taxes that I pay here goes to really making the society a safe and a happy place for everyone to live, including the plumber, the electrician, the guy who cleans the roads, which are really, really important. And um, I have not spent much time in Germany recently, but when I go to the UK, and I'm spending a lot of time in the UK, even though it's an advanced and rich society, by comparison to Switzerland, I think that there's an enormous amount of pain there Uh, pain because of the inequalities between rich and poor, uh, pain because people get it, can't get onto a good career path. And I think that um, the real motivation for many people who do the job that I do is to make societies healthier, where there are less unhappy people and more contented and happy people. And I think that Switzerland's done a great job. By reputation, I believe that Sweden's done a great job. 
Uh, I think that other large democratic economies like the United States, United Kingdom, France for sure, and quite probably Germany have a long way to go. That's, that's really what ought to motivate people like me, if that's helpful. That's very helpful. <laughs> Thank you very much for the first part of our interview. Yeah. yeah Thank you. Good.